Welcome to Write Your Book in a Flash with Dan Janelle, the only podcast where you'll learn how successful people just like you have grown their businesses, expanded their influence, and made more money by writing a book. On each episode, you'll learn the inside secrets to help you create a book that can serve as a powerful marketing tool to skyrocket your business. I'm your host, Dan Janelle. I help thought leaders, business executives, and entrepreneurs write their books. To find out more, go to writeyourbookinaflash.com. Does your book look like a lot of other books? You know, page after page of boring black type against a white background. What could be more boring? Well, that's the way books are done today. They've been done that way for many, many years, but they don't have to be done that way. Books can be beautiful. And if books are beautiful, people will read them and that will reflect positively on you. When you watch this video, you'll find out why books look so bad today, and how you can make your book stand out. Hi, I'm Dan Janelle, the author of more than a dozen books, including Write Your Book in a Flash. I'm a book strategist, and I can help you write your book as a ghostwriter, book coach, or developmental editor. Now, let's get started. Typography, book typography is this wonderful lost art. It's like watchmaking. And we've made incredible sacrifices to mass production because remember your big publisher your random house random penguin whoever the, the the big publishers they're sending books to bookstores and they're sending thousands of books the risk associated with that is amazing they're going to print books they're going to do 90 to 120 books every quarter they're going to ship them out to bookstores by the boxcar load and maybe they send out 3,000 at a time. Well, that's great. They sell 1,000 books and the author is happy. And then 2,000 books at the end of the 90-day rotation, 2,000 books are being returned. And they don't return them because it's too expensive. They tear the covers off. They send the covers back to the publisher to prove that the book was destroyed and everything else goes to the recycler or the pulp mill or whatever. So big publishers are smart. They have made the type tiny and the margins thin and the line spacing tight because they can save 30 or 40 or 50 pages per book multiplied by this large press run on, have you ever noticed how light books are? I mean, I don't know, they inject this paper with helium or something, but for me, it's like trying to read the phone book. And I see so many people imitating what's happening with mass production. But with print on demand, where we're manufacturing one book at a time, we've got amazing opportunities to kind of look back to where printing was an art form and use our digital tools to emulate what was done with hot metal type. And if you've forgotten about that, make a trip to a bookstore, look at the books, and then afterward, go to an antique store and pick up a book from the 1910s or 20s that was printed with hot metal type. On a, on a line of type machine or, or a standard printing press and open it up and it just screams, read me, I'm beautiful. That's gone today because of mass production. So let's take a look at old school typography because we can even do certain things better because we've got digital tools. We can do things that the, the old hot metal typesetters couldn't do. Typeface selection is very important. And you'll notice on the screen, I've got once upon a time, um, sulfuric acid and sodium bicarbonate, 
we don't want a very lyrical typeface for that. We have different different typefaces for different function, even computer code. So understanding typography and choosing the right typeface can really make a difference. Even if the reader never notices it, whether we use a lyrical typeface or a serious typeface or a technical typeface, it's setting a tone and it affects them in powerful subconscious ways. Just a glimpse of that. <clears throat> Here are four characters, and by the way, they're all 250 point type, and notice that they are all different heights. So just choosing the right point size may not, uh, may not harmonize things. We have to adjust things up and down. On the right, we've got uh, the two ones on the right are both serif typefaces. They're called bracketed serifs, and serifs are those little, uh, little lines on the ends of the stroke on the bottom and on the ends notice the slab serif has slab serifs it's got rectangular serifs and the one on the left is a sans serif has no serifs at all like helvetica or Arial, which is actually a ripoff of helvetica but that's a different story so lots of different typefaces and type styles and if we set the book in the wrong typeface we're going to fail to convey the meaning, the tone, there's a lot that goes into this. Another thing, and I know this is difficult to see, but here are the characters in two different typefaces. On the left, we have Georgia, which is a beautiful typeface, and it contains a finite number of characters. On the right, we've got Agmena Pro, which is a, a typeface that's designed for book production. And we have all of these extra additional characters. So when you use a typeface that's designed for book design, you're not going to go, oh, gee, I have to borrow the pound sign um, or, or the euro sign from another typeface. What are some of the differences that we find between standard digital typefaces and typefaces that are really full featured for book design? One is this idea of ligatures. You've seen this a million times and never noticed it. On the left, we have just type FI. And that dot is either balanced between the two characters or it may even collide with the end of the F. So smart software substitutes an FI ligature and the, the ball of the F is right over the top of the I and it just substitutes in there. And we have so many FIs and FLs and things and they make the reading much smoother. A lot of standard typefaces don't have these ligatures, but they really just smooth out the reading experience and you'll never notice them because you'll read right through them, but they make a difference. Talking about typefaces that have different options, notice, start on the right. The S is different in every example. The top one is just your standard cursive S. On the second example, the S has a swoosh on it, which you can use on the end of the word. Uh, or we can use the standard uh, coiled snake S. There's two different Ks. There's two different capital R's. Notice the, the Y with and, with and without the swoosh. Note the capital T, uh, the P with the loop. And so when you're setting up a title for a book or something like that, to have that much control over the typography, is the reader going to stop and say, oh, look, they used the Y with a swoosh on it? No, they're probably not, but 
it all contributes to the art of the book. And I think at the end of the day, creating something where we're working with typefaces that have the options built in, it creates a better experience. Now, here are two pages. The one on the left, it's the same type. The one on the left is imitating the way a trade book looks. The type is packed together and everything's just, you know, the margins are, are standard all around. And then we're using classic margins on the right-hand side. The type is opened up, it's easier to read. And books were done this way since the time of Gutenberg until we hit this mass production wall. And even that little place to put your thumb without covering the text on the right-hand side. And you've probably heard of the rule of thirds in photography and design. So this is kind of thirds of thirds. And if you break the page up into a grid of ninths and position everything in terms of thirds of thirds, you can see how where this layout comes from. And again, this was developed in the 1400s for the Gutenberg Bible. This is old classic print design, but we get harmonies that we, we get proportions that just harmonize with the page and they create they create an experience for the reader and i know i'm getting a little bit woo woo here because i can't quantify this scientifically but we have things like the golden mean and the golden ratio and the rule of thirds and these things have been staples of architecture and design for many many years and yet we run up against the mass production design and we have to sacrifice all of this stuff to pack more text onto the page. Another one you'll see done typically with a word processor or with digital tools is where someone clicks make the first character a drop cap or an initial cap. And yet, if you think about you know, what I've done here, the first word is some, not ohm. And if I just set the character in a white rectangle and move the type around, I don't get that experience. And if I make the rectangle smaller, God knows what a sport hole is. So just being able to adjust the drop cap, the initial cap to fit the text, it takes a little bit more time, but this is something a capable book typographer is going to do. Can you see the problem with this particular page? This is the, what happens when you typeset with a word processor instead of a typesetting program. And I'll show you the problem. It's right here. And this is called a river. When we justify text, we end up very often with spacing that lines up in uncomfortable ways and it creates these rivers of white space through the type. And if we use a typesetting program like Adobe InDesign or Quark Express, or the big competitor that's coming up and cost very little money is uh, uh, Affinity Publisher. I think it costs $75 or $50 for a lifetime subscription. It's not quite as powerful, but it's getting there. And some things that we can do. So this is just standard type and it's placed, it's justified type because usually we fully justify type in a book. Can you see how all of these hyphens when we've got two or more hyphens on consecutive lines, it's called a ladder. And can you see how they make that kind of visual scoop out of the side of the text box? Well, we can adjust that first by using hanging punctuation, something that would have been difficult for a traditional printer to do. 
And by letting those quotation marks and periods and hyphens hang off the side, hang outside the text box, visually we get a nice straight line on both sides. And part of working, there are so many adjustments we can make to the hyphenation, to the letter spacing, to the way the computer adjusts the consecutive lines. What you're looking at here is the original type and overlaid on top of it in color is the adjusted type. We've got incredible tools for just adjusting um, justified type. And you're not gonna get that in a word processor. A word processor, typesetting a book in Microsoft Word is really kind of a travesty. Yes, you can make it work if you're on a budget, but you're not gonna get these fine adjustments that make the type elegant and legible, readable. So coming back to the whole presentation at the beginning, and this speaks to that question on trends, suit the book to the author's purpose. Are they trying to appeal to a speaking audience? Are they working in a certain industry? Are they very artistic and whimsical? Or are they very uh, rigid and scientific and fact-based? Suit the cover to the author's purpose and also understand where it is that they're gonna be selling the book because it's not gonna be in a bookstore. Remember that word processors are great for words. If you're like me, you have a love-hate relationship with Microsoft Word because it always tries to think for you, but track changes is magnificent and it's great. But whenever someone sends me a manuscript that they've already set up as five and a half by eight and a half with margins, or I just cringe. Just, just work as eight and a half by 11, make your manuscript go. Why imitate mass production? Because it's done nothing but erode book design, both for covers and for book interiors. And get inspired by classic print design. There are so many wonderful books on graphic design and book typography. If you buy them and just thumb through them, also for covers, Chip Kidd is a wonderful book cover designer. And I think he designs for Penguin, but there are books of his stuff look at great design no matter what whether you're designing the interior or the exterior go to an antique store buy a few books go to a bookstore buy a few books about cover design um, buy some books about I, I love the blue note album cover art books they're great for your coffee table and they're loaded with inspiration ultimately we need to serve our writer and then we need to serve our reader can we give them the best possible experience and a book that feels like they've received something special? And that's what I got. Dave, thank you very much. That was excellent. That was a lot of hands clapping here. Fantastic. Thank you very uh, much. Let great. me switch over. Sure. Let me ask you a question or two that I have and we'll open up to uh, people as well. I've noticed that when I pick up a self-published book, Many times I can tell it is a self-published book. It just does not have the same look and feel and design. And I can't tell what it is, but I just know it. And I'm wondering two questions here. Do the average people know it? Because after all, many people listen to this uh, episode, want to write a book that increases their professionalism and their credibility. And if a book doesn't have the right design, it can actually take away from that credibility. And two, what are some of the classic mistakes that 
self-publishers make that make their books look amateurish, if there are any other examples beyond what you've already talked about with the ladders and those other pieces? So two so, questions in one. I think that people conflate self-publishing with self-designing. And if you're gonna if you're gonna do anything, do do it right. You know, when 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 my toilet breaks, I hire a plumber. I could probably get in there and start unbolting things and changing gaskets, but I'm not very good at that. I'm not trained to do that. When I need uh, and look, I've edited many books, but when I'm ready to publish a book, I work with a professional editor. It's like being your own lawyer to edit your own book. So. I think this idea that self-publishing is something like, oh, I'm going to do this for free. Look, if you don't want to pay for typesetting, then release an ebook. There's all sorts, there's ways around it. But I mean, the idea that somebody, I mean, I've literally seen people try to design a cover in PowerPoint. And how many hours do you spend creating a book? Hundreds, thousands of hours between the writing and the editing and to wrap that book in fish paper when you're done is 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 a travesty. I understand uh, designers, you know, design typesetting. It's not cheap, but what's your what's your book worth? And again, do you have a way to sell it? Do you have do you have an audience? Do you have a following? And look, I I, I did my three novels. I did my memoir and. Even at my cost, I'll never pay for those. I'll, ne I'll never recover the money for them, but God, I'm glad I did it. I mean, writing your memoir is cathartic. Writing, writing your novels is creative, and there's a place for art in this world, and art doesn't necessarily pay for itself. Thank you for listening to the Write Your Book in a Flash podcast with Dan Janelle, the only podcast that shows you exactly how people just like you have built their businesses by writing a book. If you'd like to write your book but don't know where to start, you can find great information at writeyourbookinaflash.com. If you're ready to take your next step to write the book that can transform your business, I invite you to schedule a free, no-obligation consulting call with me by going to writeyourbookinaflash.com. We'll be back next week with another insightful interview to help you become a top business leader.